when we do our jobs well, then we really provide a system for our kids to thrive in a million ways. Showing up as a parent and being the parent we want to be really comes from feeling more at home in the person we are. From To Be Magnetic, this is The Expanded Podcast with your host, Lacey Phillips. destination for neural manifestation, we dispel the woo-woo in order to help you create real, tangible results based on neuroplasticity, psychology, epigenetics, and energetics. Our goal is to normalize the practice of manifestation and empower you to get into the driver's seat of your life in order to manifest the experiences, relationships, and things that most align with your authenticity. Part of our manifestation process entails expanding past your limiting subconscious beliefs. Therefore, by tuning into this podcast with interviews from experts, thought leaders, spiritual teachers, scientists, and those with neural manifestation success stories, you're starting the process of expanding your subconscious in order to see to believe that anything you desire is possible. And by pressing play, the process begins. Welcome back, everyone, to the Expanded Podcast. Jessica here. I am so excited for today's guest. You may already be following her on Instagram. I know I have, and I've been saving her tips and tools for months for whenever I have a future child. Today, we have on Dr. Becky Kennedy from Good Inside. So Dr. Becky Kennedy is a clinical psychologist, mom of three, PhD from Columbia, and recently named the Millennial Parenting Whisperer. She really specializes on thinking deeply on what happens for kids when big emotions are coming up and actionable strategies for parents to use in the home. Her goal is to empower parents to feel sturdier and more equipped to manage the challenges of parenting. And her debut book just launched this past September 13th called Good Inside, A Guide to Becoming the Parent You Want to Be. I'm so excited for this episode because whether you are a parent, you want to be a parent one day, you are doing inner child work and reparenting yourself and wanting to give yourself things that you didn't quite get in childhood, or you just want to have better relationships. All of Dr. Becky's tools are so, so applicable and about going back into what is triggering you. How can you self-regulate? How can you self-validate so you can create a safe space for others to do the same around you? In this episode, Lacey and Dr. Becky chat on managing our triggers, how to repair after a conflict or an issue arises, the philosophy and principle that two things are true, being able to see multiple truths at once, ours and someone else's, is the key to getting out of conflict because it allows both people to be validated, to feel seen, to feel real, and it helps move through conflict with more ease. They also touch on different self-regulation things, confidence, and how to build resilience in our kids. And what I love about Dr. Becky's book specifically, because I had the pleasure of getting to read it right before it launched, it really is a guide not only to being an incredible parent and to have principles, which is like the foundation of what you're shooting for. We're never going to get it 100% right every single time. It really is just such an approachable way to parenting. 
I'm also utilizing the tips and tools in the book and bringing that back into some of my DIs in inner child DIs and on block DIs. Whenever I'm bringing forth my inner child and needing to reparent in some way, I'm keeping a lot of Dr. Becky's tips and ideas in mind so I can start to reparent my inner child from a place of empathy and validation. If you weren't taught how to feel your feelings or it was safe to even feel your feelings in childhood, this is such a good way to build the skills now to reparent yourself, to identify where those feelings are, to lean into them and start to give yourself perhaps what you didn't get in childhood while also holding grace that every parent is trying to do the best they can. It's not a blame game. It's just how can we support ourselves now knowing all of the things we know now. And I was talking to my fiance and we were like, wow, we're so lucky and happy. We live in a time where there are so many resources for these things. We can listen to a podcast. We have a book. There's so many things you have resources and tools to to dive into it. So big proponent of learning all of these insights of how to parent better because we can also become better parents to ourselves and to others and friends. It's just such a ripple effect. And before you jump into the episode, I just wanted to let you know that our pre-sale is available for our Resentment Digital Masterclass. So if you missed the LA Magnetic Meetup where we taught all about resentment, we have a digital version masterclass where we're going to walk through all of the elements that go into resentment, where it shows up in our life, how to clear it, what it might be blocking, a brand new DI, brand new journal prompts, a sabbatic experiencing exercise from Janelle and tips and insight and teachings from all the coaches as well as Janelle Nelson. So if you are interested in that, that is on pre-sale now and you can check it out in the show notes and it will drop on November 10th. Without further ado, enjoy the episode. And now a word from our partners. One thing I'm obsessed with is getting better gut health. I think it is a rotating thing, something you always have to be mindful of. And so much of our health and our immune system starts in our gut. It even helps regulate what's happening in our brains oftentimes. A lot of people will call it our second brain. And one of the ways that I really try to take the best care I possibly can of my gut is by having a really good probiotic. And so I look no further than the top of the industry standard, Seed's Daily Symbiotic. What I love about Seed is not only is it the most scientifically proven broad spectrum 24 strain probiotic, it also has a prebiotic formula that is engineered to help survive in the gut, which means as it is traveling through your digestive system, past stomach acids, bile, etc., it is reaching the spot in your gut that it needs to go to populate with the good probiotics. A lot of other companies on the market do not have that capability and the probiotics aren't actually reaching where it needs to go in the gut. And what I really love about them as well is they're not only the most comprehensive 24 strains of probiotic that we really need for overall health, but it has a prebiotic in it. And here's why the prebiotic is so important. If you think about probiotics as good bacteria that are feeding your gut to help balance it, give you nutrition, energy, vitality, all of the things that we need for our overall health, those bacteria need to feed off of something. 
And one of the things that they feed off of is good food fibers. Now, if we don't have good food fibers in our gut, those bacteria can go down there. And then if they have no food, they're not gonna be able to protect you. But if they have a prebiotic, which is a prebiotic fiber, they are fed and can have the necessary things they need to survive. So then that way they can then protect your gut from bad bacteria or other invaders in your system that are disrupting your body. And with Seed's DS1 Daily Symbiotic, the 24 strains are clinically and scientifically studied to support all systems, including digestive, gut barrier, gut immune function, heart health, skin health, micronutrient synthesis, and so much more. What I also love about Seed is it is so incredibly sustainable. They have a glass jar packaging that you get on your first subscription. And after that, you get completely compostable packaging to just fill into your vials. They also give you a travel vial that you can take when you're on the go. It is so easy to take. I take it first thing in the morning, even before my lemon water. And it really just helps support my baseline of gut health. So for anyone interested in trying out Seed, we have a code for your first month supply, 15% off with TBM15. Again, that is TBM15 for 15% off your first month supply of seed. I highly recommend it. I get all of my friends and family on it. It is really transformed my baseline level of gut health and I know it will do the same for yours as well. All right. Onto the episode. And welcome, Dr. Becky. We're so excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I have to say, I'm definitely a big like Instagram follower. I definitely tune in when I'm zoning out after the day and just needing to ground of work. I'm just like, what does Dr. Becky have to say, if anything, today? (laughs) I'm a mom of a 14-month-old. But I think what we were just talking about prior to pressing record is for our audience, you know, if you don't identify as a parent yet, this is going to be tremendous because so much of our work is pinpointing your triggers, reparenting, unblocking anything that is a trigger and healing it through various modalities. So our audience should be pretty excited to hear about wonderful education, wonderful tools and tips about when they are down there reparenting, big takeaways of what they can do. (laughs) Um, And then of course, if you are a parent, this is equally as exciting. So Let's pop into it. There is an interesting question. We start with everybody because we are hippies over here. Do you know your astrology sign? (laughs) My astrology sign as in, there's many signs, right? Not your moon sign. I'm learning more about this. Well, we would love to know sun, moon and rising, but I don't expect you to have to know that. (laughs) You know what? I did a little exercise uh, with an amazing astrologer, but I don't remember all of it. I do know the sign that like most of us, No, based on our birth date. That is a Pisces. Fantastic. Which are fantastic parents. A lot of my Piscean uh, friends are wonderful, wonderful moms. So that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) And then hit us with your cultural background and upbringing, you know, how you got to where you are today. So I was brought up in the suburbs of New York City by my married mother and father, And I have an older brother. I have a younger sister. So 
in some ways I'm a middle child. I say in some ways, but my sister was born when I was five and a half. So I feel like true middles have a little tighter of a squeeze there. And that is kind of the immediate information that comes to mind. But I like to be a good student. So I just pulled up my other information. I want to tell you just so you can keep it in mind. Okay. Fantastic. Sun in Pisces in the third house, moon in Scorpio in the 11th house. And then I'm a Capricorn rising. Which makes the business piece make sense. And also very clear systems and very clear tools and tips. So that makes Mm. a lot of sense. The rising is is how we appear when you first meet us. So that makes tons of sense. Thank you for pulling that up. <laughs> yes. Certainly our community can identify. And then, you know, what led you into the work you're doing? You know, where did you become interested and go to Columbia? Like, how did that come about? Yeah. So I honestly have just always found people infinitely interesting. Those are the interactions I want to have. Like, I just want to get to know people. And I feel like my curiosity just comes alive there. Like, I always have a million more questions for people than answers that I want to even end with. And why we do the things we do, how we're impacted by the systems we live in, how we're impacted by the systems that preexisted us, how people take on roles in various systems and their roles could almost be confused with their identity. And really the idea that uh, by the time we're adults, the things we struggle with, I think some people would label them as symptoms. I'm not a big fan of diagnosis, but Mm. those things we struggle with all were adaptations early on. And so we have this paradox. Okay, I adapted early on to my system to thrive, to survive. And now a lot of those things work against me, but you know, our body is hesitant to let go of the things that were put in place to protect us. And so there's a lot of stuckness we can have. And the idea that I could actually make this a job, like my actual job could be getting to know people, understanding why they became the way they became, understanding the systems around them, understanding the systems that were part of their early years, and then helping people get from that frozen kind of locked up state to an unlocked state and make the changes they want to have in their life. That was just really, really compelling. And then the idea that I could take that and take so many of those arcs I learned around human development and kind of reverse engineer the information back to today's parents to help their kids right from the start. Well, then that really excited me because I'm a huge fan of therapy. I'm a huge fan of, you know, the work we do. And I'm a huge believer that it's never, ever, ever too late. And It's just a gift to give kids wiring that supports adult development rather than wiring that ends up having to be rewired. And I just am so passionate about the idea of connecting with parents now and giving them tools to simultaneously, and simultaneously matters because parenthood is just, it's so busy. Like we have to be efficient with our time. So the idea that we can have strategies that both help us rewire And the ways that feel better for us and more adaptive for our lives today. And at the same time, those same strategies can help our kids from the start. That just gets me out of bed every morning, bright and early at five and leads me to want to do a million different things. That's incredible. What do you think, in your opinion, if you were to narrow down the single most important foundational tool that a parent can harness to have success of providing from the start their children, you know, self-worth, confidence, et cetera, what would be that? You know, I, I think the first idea is that 
But when we think about the things we really want to give to our kids, I want to give them confidence. I want them to feel at home in themselves. I want them to be able to assert themselves. I want them to be able to say, no, I don't like that, right? I want them to be able to set boundaries, even if other people are disappointed. I want them also to know how to be in healthy relationships. If you think about all of those things, you know, I think the first step and the first thing we need to do as parents is, is gaze inward, honestly, instead of gazing out. It's not, how do I give those things to my kids? It's, would it serve me to give more of those things to myself? Not only for my kids' benefit. Like, I think there's this thing like, yeah, because that's good for my kids. Like, okay, that's nice. But how about just like you as a human being? Like, why aren't you just deserving of feeling less anxious? Why aren't you just deserving of feeling more confident? You deserve to set a boundary and say no to things and feel freer. And so I think the idea that showing up as a parent and being the parent we want to be really comes from feeling more at home in the person we are, is really powerful for parents to hear and to watch yourself say, yeah, that's going to be good for my kids and kind of say, okay, true, but you know what? I am a person beyond a caregiver and it's just important for me. That's number one. And then the number two thing I would say to parents listening, and honestly, I would say this to any non-parent listening, I feel like the single most important strategy to get good at in life is repair. And you know, I think this is actually like a complex recommendation because I have a feeling your listeners are all like very deep thinkers. So probably get this right away. But if you really think about getting good at repair, what that means is like, you don't have to get good at being perfect. Like you're still going to do the thing you don't want to do. And okay, you're going to do it less often. We can work on our triggers and, you know, we can show up more and more often in the way we want to for sure. And you're still going to get triggered and you're still going to yell and you're still going to say things you don't want to say. And getting good at repair is just so human because you're saying, okay, like we're all imperfect. But what I can start to work on is going back to the person I had a rupture with, owning my part explaining what happened and adding all the elements, the compassion, the connection, the coherence that were missing in the first place. And we can really change the end of a chapter because that moment no longer ends in the feelings that felt so bad and scary and alone. Now that moment gets resurfaced and we got to add on elements that make things feel safe again. And what would be your big tools for that or just a tool for that? Because I know like a codependent me sitting here and thinking of the past, even though, you know, like I've been through various workshops, et cetera, to help me with that. But I know a lot of people go like, oh, shit, really? Oh, God. You know, it's so scary for somebody who doesn't feel equipped for that. Yes. Beyond your partner, say your current partner in your household. What's the first foot in front of the others if that sounds scary to someone? Yes. So I would say if repair feels scary. Number one, there's nothing wrong with you. Number two, it doesn't mean you're cold-hearted. I actually think it means that you're probably unaware of or haven't kind of been taught what the real first step is in repair. And the first step of repairing with someone else is actually repairing with yourself. And the reason I think repair feels so scary, oh, I really have to go back and like kind of say sorry. Like if that sets you into a spiral, it's because you haven't been able to find, I really mean this, like your own internal inherent goodness under a certain behavior. What happened was whatever behavior happened, whatever moment happened that you don't feel good about has collapsed into your identity. So that yell became the person you are. That nasty phrase you said to someone became who you are. And, and actually right now, I, I, I'm a very visual person, Lacey. So if everyone even listening, assuming you're not driving, if you're driving, do not do what I'm going to say. But put your hands in front of you as if there's a little space. 
and look at, let's say it's your left hand and almost like turn your palm, turn your palm and say, oh, this is something I did. That's my behavior. Okay, keep that over there. Separated from your right hand. Look at your right hand. It's like, this is who I am. And almost watch the way, or even you can experiment with almost like bringing those hands closer together and think about a behavior. Oh, I yelled at my kids. I yelled at my kids. I'm such a bad mom. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Separate behavior. Yelling at my kids. And even you can say, yeah, so not great. Like, I don't want to yell at my kids. Okay, that's something I did. That's a behavior. And then separate that right hand and look at that right hand and say, I'm still a good person. I'm a good parent who yelled at my kid. I'm a good partner who yelled at my spouse. My behavior isn't who I am. My behavior is something I did. And when we're able to remind ourselves of that, this is what I think is so important. People say, so you just let yourself off the hook. It's like the most misguided thing. No, if you want to let yourself off the hook for something you did, shame yourself and blame yourself away because shame is a frozen physiological state. And I think we all know you can't change if you're frozen. So if you really want to let yourself off the hook, tell yourself you're awful, define yourself by your latest behavior, that's how you let yourself off the hook. If you want to leave yourself on the hook for change, find that goodness underneath. It doesn't mean you make the behavior okay. It actually means you're now capable because you feel safe and grounded and you can actually put energy somewhere else than really trying to almost save and protect yourself. If you want to leave yourself on the hook, find your goodness inherent in you under your behavior. And now you can actually take steps to change. Now you can actually go to your child and say some version of, I'm sorry I yelled. It's never your fault when I yell. I know I said you did this to me. It's never true. Those are my feelings. It's my job to work on managing them. And one of the things I promise you is when I don't, I'll always come to you. I'll remind you it wasn't your fault. I'll remind you I love you. And I'll even be open to hearing what that was like for you because I'm sure that felt scary. And you are actually adding in all the elements that you want with your kid. You're taking away blame from them. You don't want them to develop a circuit of self-blame like so many of us have. We're reconnecting. We're actually building a moment based in the repair. Like that's such an amazing opportunity. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's, there's just so much there that's so important. And most likely, as you touched on the root of that self-blame and not being able to separate yourself from your behavior and who you are really is rooted down just into, you know, what was laid onto you in childhood, which we all know. So that's really, I mean, that's just so powerful to, like you said, in real time, rewire our own trauma and identity. Yes, exactly. Well, this leads us into the very thing that we should just jump off the cliff on here. <laughs> and <laughs> you have the new workshop coming out, or it may have already launched, but Triggers, you know, which touches on this specifically. Let's just dive into that a little bit through your lens, what that looks like for parents, for people, for every person who was a child on this planet. Let's just talk about that a little bit from your perspective. Yes, this is truly one of my favorite topics. And I think it's why... So much of the good inside approach resonates with such a big range of people because people realize like, I don't even need to have a kid to do this work. Like, you know, you, you and I talked about before, or I have a kid and wow, yes, I need all the strategies and scripts for my kid. But honestly, all of those are literally going to be inaccessible to me in a trigger moment because in a trigger moment, I'm in a state of threat. So all that work 
I always say, you know, the reason why I'm doing this whole trigger workshop in the membership is because I think all of the parents I know have done the reading, the videos, the workshops, they've memorized the scripts. And it's like a waste if we don't do the next work or really the, the foundational work that allows us to unlock all of that. It's just waiting to be unlocked and trigger work is the unlock. So first of all, what I'll say about triggers is a trigger is not a sign that anything is wrong with you. And no one really asked me that. No one says, Dr. Becky, is a trigger a sign something's wrong with me? But I always feel like it's underneath the questions we have because we personalize things a lot. Like, oh, I know what I want to say. And instead I say something so awful. What's wrong with me? What kind of parent says those things? What kind of parent, you know, has done all of these workshops and memorized these things and still ends up telling her child she's spoiled instead of saying the thing I want to say? Nothing is wrong with you. Nothing is wrong with you. And it goes back to what we started with in the beginning, that everything we struggle with in adulthood at some point was adaptive. And that's a huge framework shift because then we can come at the moments that no longer work from us from a place of, huh, what's going on in my body? Like what time or year does my body think it is? And when did this work for me? And what version worked for me? We look at ourselves and especially our trigger moments as kind of like clues to a puzzle. And if we were on a scavenger hunt, we like clues. You know, you want clues. You don't want to ever try to find something without a clue. So these are clues and it's really softening and honestly disrespectful to think about that. So if we think about a trigger, let's say, you know, I'm thinking about a common trigger with parents and I would say whining is a huge trigger. You know, your kid comes up to you and like, can you just get me water? You know, and even now I feel my heart rate. That can be triggering for me. And instead of doing the thing we told ourselves we're going to do, we say, okay, they're whining, but it's not that big of a deal. They're only four and I'm going to take a deep breath and I'm going to say, can you ask that another way? But then the moment comes and it's like I'm in this calm until I explode pattern and end up saying something that I don't want to say. So what is happening there? Well, first of all, any moment that we react to in an intense way, any trigger moment, we're not reacting to the behavior we see. We're reacting to our interpretation of what that behavior means, plus our own body circuitry of what we learned about that meaning. That was jargony. So let me explain this with an example. What does whining really mean to me? I think for a lot of people, what's really going on with whining as an example is it represents just like total helplessness, total powerlessness. I think as adults, we often forget to like ask ourselves, well, when, when would I do this thing? When would I whine? When would I explode with a feeling, right? And I still remember trying to get a coffee in my favorite coffee shop before an important meeting that I had to take the subway to. So I was like, awesome, I'm going to stop and get my coffee. It's going to like rev me up for this meeting. I'm like, I need it. And I got there on time and like they weren't opening. They weren't opening. And finally, the person at the store opened and they were like, oh, sorry, we're having like a staff training and, you know, we're not opening until eight or something. I literally, I, this is literally, what I, said. I was like, oh, please, like, can you just get me a coffee? And I whined. It was like no different than the child whining for water. Why do we whine? Because we want something badly and we feel powerless. And so how does this relate to being triggered? Well, often we look to shut down in others what we had to learn to harshly shut down in ourselves. 
And here's how that works. If you grew up in a family that was like a pull up your bootstraps kind of family, like a stop feeling bad for yourself, stop whining, what is wrong with you? You have it, you know, so good. Put that away. If you whining to your parents for water would have been met, not just with a no, but like, yeah, a major, major harsh shutdown reaction, then here's the amazing thing about our body. Your body learns and your body's always thinking, well, what can I do in my family of origin to make sure I get love and security and attachment? That's what I need. Ooh, asking for something from a state of powerlessness, powerlessness and helplessness, bad, 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 bad. Put that away. Put it away to maximize survival and connection. And so what I actually have to do as a kid in my body, it's so amazing and adaptive, is develop a protector part of me. The protector part actually has to help me not express helplessness. And how does it do that? It probably does that in a harsh way. Becky, what's wrong with you? You can figure this out by yourself. Stop being so pathetic. I actually will develop that voice in myself. And it sounds mean, but it's actually really adaptive because it's trying to stop me from getting in some ways the attachment injury I would get if that helplessness came to the surface. So fast forward now 30 years and now I have a kid who's whining and this represents helplessness to me. My body scans itself and essentially it thinks like, what do I know about this situation? And then that protector part, who's now no longer probably adaptive, probably just like a little overzealous, misguided. It's like the part that always puts their hand up in class, right? And you're like, all right, chill out. But it does. And it's like, it jumps out and it reacts to your kid. And you don't want that to happen, but your body is in a state of threat based on what you learned about that trigger event in your own background. Now, I think the next question is, okay, well, if that makes sense to me, what do I do next? There's a lot of things, right? There's a, but basically what it comes from is looking at okay, what am I seeing in my child? I had to learn to shut down in myself. And then I can't really expect my own body to react differently and say the thing I want to say until I kind of heal that wound, until I rework that circuit. And that, yeah, it, it requires kind of consistent work, but there's actually stuff we can do, small things every day. And then the irony is, and, and I think almost the power is, wow, I can change that moment even if my child doesn't whine. It's not about getting them to whine less. It's actually about just showing up differently physiologically and then changing from there. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, full agreement and everything we believe in here. You said a word that I love because one of my big questions, you know, is every parent hopes this, every person hopes to have this for themselves, but what is the foundation of building a secure attachment? And you said something really, really interesting, which I'd never heard before, but an attachment injury. Let's talk about those two things. Yeah. And let me be clear when we're talking, because I think sometimes when we think about the early years, I know so many parents are like, oh my goodness, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess it up. And there's an attachment injury. Kids are so resilient. And when we think about, let's say, the way we were impacted in our own childhood. We're not impacted by like single moments. Like, let me be clear. I say to my kids all the time, stop whining. What's wrong with you? I definitely say that. Then I try to repair and I try to say things like that less often. But kids aren't wired from single moments. 
they learn patterns. They look for patterns. And so everyone take a deep breath. There's no perfect parent. I actually get the heebie-jeebies at the thought of like a kid having a perfect parent who's attuned to them all the yeah, time. Yeah, it's like, just wild and weird. Right. But to <laughs> want to set someone up for unhappiness in adulthood is like set them up to look for a partner who is attuned to all their needs at, you know, all the time. Like good, good luck, you know? So th- we don't want that, right? We have those misattunements. And then hopefully we have repair. And the idea of like an attachment injury, honestly, I actually don't even think I've ever said those words out loud. So like- I love it. Coin it. TM that right now. (laughs) It actually speaks to the importance of repair. Kids are oriented by attachment. Attachment is the thing that is most critical for survival. Because we think- for survival. You need food, shelter, and water. Well, we also know you need love and connection and all those things. But actually, how does a kid get food, shelter, and water? By proximity to their parents. Like as a human species, we are dependent and unable to survive on our own for so many more years than other animals. Like I don't know what the age is, but like it's a lot right? By the time you'd say, yeah, I think my kid could survive on their own. So as they're learning about the world and wiring their bodies, it's all in the context of the main question. What parts of me bring me closer to my parent and get me more proximity and love and safety and connection and ooh, grow those parts, grow those parts. And what parts of me get distant and judgment and blame and separation and increase distance, threat, 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 put those parts away. That's how kids develop. So when we yell at our kids and when we say, go to your room, don't hit your sister. Now, yeah, we have to deal with things. Hitting is not okay, agreed. But when we do that, a kid's not learning. Hitting isn't okay. And they're definitely not in their room thinking, I wonder what I could do instead of hit when I'm angry. I'm just going to open up my encyclopedia and, and learn some other things. They're definitely not learning. What actually is happening, and I guess what they are learning is, ooh, when I feel angry and jealous, I get distance from my parents. That feeling is the thing that kind of led to these actions. And I just better put those feelings away. Well, guess what? We can't unfeel feelings. It's just impossible. We feel before we think. We feel as like the foundation of like our very being. So all those messages internally, okay, put that anger away, put that jealousy away. Here's the biggest irony. You're, you can send your kid to your room. Yeah, there's that kind of, I guess, attachment injury because a kid learns anger and jealousy cannot exist within safe relationships. They are a threat. Well, guess what happens ironically the next time your kid feels angry at their sister? They have a threat system. We can never learn to regulate feelings we don't allow ourselves to have. Now, anger, essentially, here's the biggest irony, is like, get out, get out, get out of the body, threat, threat. So it comes out of the body in the form of a hit. Now the kid is sent to their room again and we're just off to the races in a really, really unproductive cycle versus some version of, I won't let you hit your sister. You're allowed to be mad. You absolutely cannot hurt someone. That's why I'm standing in between you and your sister. I'm here. You're a good kid. We're going to figure out a different way to let everyone know how angry you are. Very firm, very sturdy. I'm actually embodying my authority. I'm stepping in I always think people who we send our kids to their room all the time, it's such like a disembodiment of our own authority to just be like, oh, go away. You know, I wouldn't want any leader in my life to, you know, to have that leadership style. So I'm stepping in, but I'm seeing the good kid underneath. I'm essentially saying, yes, you're angry. I'm here. Your anger can live in your close relationship with me. I'm going to stop the anger from turning into rageful behavior for your own sake, not only your sister's, but that feeling isn't the problem. The problem is that it's hard to regulate that feeling. 
And by showing you I can manage things with you, when you're having that feeling, that is the first step to learning how to manage that feeling, which ironically is going to be the thing that leads to less hitting anyway over time. Yes. In that, you said you cannot learn to manage your own emotions, right? And I can't remember the last part of that. Let's speak to that. That's huge. We can't learn to regulate a feeling we don't allow ourselves to have. Yes. It's actually like a really powerful idea for adults. We all have feelings that we'd rather not have. And they actually differ between us. But feelings, quote, we'd rather not have are probably feelings that weren't held as safe feelings within our closest attachment relationships early on. That was the lesson we learned. Put that feeling away. But there's such a paradox here is that feelings only give us problems when they convert into behavior. So I always think our out-of-control behaviors, even as adults, right, the road rage, the yelling, whatever we do, or as kids, the tantrums, the, the hitting, the biting, the spitting, the I hate yous, those moments are all signs of a feeling becoming too big to manage inside the body. I always feel like the feeling is like, I'm exploding out of you in all these ways, in the I hate yous, in your extremities, in the kicks and hits, because I'm too big and overwhelming to live inside. Not live inside like suppress, but literally just like have a place. And the goal isn't to not feel a whole range of feelings. That's disturbing. And it's not possible. The goal, I think, is to be able to feel all your feelings and have coping skills for each of them. So you feel them, and still can feel safe. So I feel anger and I can feel safe and make decisions. I feel jealousy and I can feel safe in the moment feeling jealousy. And then I can make decisions about how to handle that. And in childhood, there's just like an inconvenient truth that you come into the world with all the feelings and none of the skills, none of the skills, but all the feelings. So they are just like a ball of distress. But if we think about our goal for our kids, it's like when they're 18, Right, Lacey, like, I don't know any 18-year-olds or any 48-year-olds or 59-year-olds or 100-year-olds who are like, my parent got all the frustration and jealousy and anger out of me. They just got it out. And now I never feel that. That literally has never happened. But I think we all know a lot of adults who have all those feelings and basically have the same coping skills as a two-year-old. And so the first step to learning to manage a feeling is reminding yourself, I'm allowed to have this feeling. I can have this feeling. This is a right feeling to have. I'm allowed to be feeling the exact way that I feel right now. You're kind of saying to the feeling, hey, you can live in my body. You have a home here. That's really the foundation for regulation. That's so, so, so big. And even I think in adulthood, having the capability of naming feelings, it's to my surprise, we have vocabulary, sure, but true understanding and then feeling it is, it's just, I think that's suppressed in so many people. I mean, yes. And, and the reason so many feelings are kind of suppressed is if we think about what we were talking about around attachment lessons, right? That's what I think about. I'm like, what attachment lessons did I learn early on? That kids are really processing their development through the lens of what brings me closeness and what gives distance. Distance is threat. And then you have to keep away certain feelings or parts that you watched lead to distance. That's actually adaptive. And then fast forward 30 years. Well, 
our body gets confused. Like it really, it's like, it doesn't know it's 2022. It can feel still like 1995. And, and we need to be grateful for this. Imagine if you had to relearn every year how to cross the street, how to look both ways. Like the fact that you learned that in 1995 and don't have to relearn that in 2022 is something like we would all be really grateful for. If you learned how to swim when you were a kid, thank goodness you don't have to learn a new way now. And if you did, if someone said to you, oh, swimming, nope, it's nothing to do with that at all. It's actually, I don't know, some totally different thing to do in a pool or in the ocean. You'd be like, wow, okay. Well, your body would probably still do one thing that you would learn that used to be adaptive. And then you'd be like, oh, I'm doing that thing. Okay. And then you'd have to work on it. And then hopefully that new skill would, you know, become easier over time with practice. So, you know, the fact that our body continues activating the same circuits that used to protect us, it's, it's terribly inconvenient in some ways, but, but it's really something we have to have gratitude for because this protector part is really trying to help. And so even just everyone listening, if you could say jealousy is a feeling that whenever I feel jealous, I get totally unraveled. It's really adaptive right now, even just to wonder, I wonder what I learned early on about jealousy. Like, what was it like when I was jealous of my twin sister? What was it like when I was jealous of that kid who always got to go on vacations? What was the reaction when I said to my parents, no fair, Jonah got ice cream and I didn't. Was it some version of, hey, we do so many things for you. Or was it, oh, it's really hard to see people have things that you don't have. No, we're not getting ice cream, sweetie, but you're allowed to feel jealous. I'd feel jealous too. And sometimes time and waiting together is the best thing for it. It's really the only thing. I'm making that up, right? I probably mm-hmm. wouldn't say that to my kids. I'd react and repair and try to do better the next time. But if I did, well, if you think about the pattern of that, fast forward to adulthood, you're going to have a very different relationship with jealousy based on those different attachment lessons. Huge, huge, huge. Oh my gosh, this is so, so big and so important when anybody, yeah, is in parenthood or reparenting their inner child. It's so big. So I'm quickly interrupting this episode to invite you if you're ready to start your manifestation journey, or if anything you've heard in our manifestation episodes has piqued your interest to begin. We have a la carte workshops in everything from the basics bundle, which is what we recommend to everyone who starts. It's the formula that actually teaches you how to manifest, unblocked inner child, and unblocked shadow. We also have a la carte workshops on love and money. But the real gem is the Pathway membership because it encompasses every single workshop we have. It's a year-long membership with full access to the few a la carte offerings we have and exclusive workshops not available anywhere else, such as the daily practice, which is what everybody in the Pathway uses, hopefully at least three times a week to daily in order to truly create the new neural pathways that one needs in order to manifest and houses the library of our deep imaginings, which is our unique hypnosis process that allows you to get into your subconscious and overwrite those old neural pathways, creating the new ones. You can use our special code EXPANDED, all caps, E-X-P-A-N-D-E-D, to receive $20 off your first a la carte workshop purchase or $20 off your first month of the pathway. Again, that's all caps, EXPANDED, E-X-P-A-N-D-E-D. Okay, now back to the episode.
while we're on it, and you've been talking about so many elements of it, but what are the main foundational blocks for secure attachments? You know, secure attachment comes from really having something called like a secure base. And I think this is like another big paradox in child development, the idea that independence is born from dependence, right? And let's talk about that and what that means relative to a secure base. So when you think about attachment and secure attachment, there were a lot of very early, brilliant studies done around attachment. And it was done with something called the strange situation. And essentially, there were these series of events that would happen where a parent was with a child and the child often was like of crawling age and there'd be a bunch of toys in a room and and the researchers would just observe and they'd watch what the, you know, the baby did. And then a stranger would come into the room and they'd watch what the baby did. And then the mom would leave and only the stranger would be there. And then the mom would come back. So we have this baseline. We watch how a baby explores. We have kind of someone new, a stranger. Then we have a uh, goodbye, and then we have a reunion. And what they found around secure attachment, and again, attachment is such this like concrete system and it has so much to do with proximity that you literally watch attachment play out in these studies. And the videos of these still, you can find them like on YouTube. They're amazing to watch. And what they watched with kids with a secure attachment were able to use their parent as a secure base. And they were able to take in their parents' soothing in a reunion. So this is really important. Those babies, it's not like they cried or didn't cry. It's not like they had any one particular behavior, but they did use a parent as a secure base to explore and come back to. So for example, they would crawl and use the toys and then they might crawl back to their parent or look back at their parent. And this moment is always called like recharging. They'd like recharge with their base. They came to their parent's side when a stranger came in, kind of like, oh, is this okay? And a lot of them did cry when their parent left. But then when their parent came back, they were able to take in soothing. And actually, we know later from other studies that you watch their body biologically calm down again. So what does this tell us about secure attachment? Well, kids with a secure attachment feel safe with their parent. They feel accepted, they feel loved, and they look to their parent for comfort in moments of change, in moments of newness. They also then are able to trust in that relationship and go back into the world. The idea of a baby going back to play with toys, it's really the same as us as adults. Like, can I travel? Can I take on a new job? Can I apply for something new? Can I ask for a raise? Can I push myself to the unknown? Because I feel like I have a secure base to come back to. And I think by the time we fast forward to adulthood, that secure base might actually still be apparent, but we've kind of internalized it. And we feel like we can take on these risks because we trust that like we ourselves can kind of recover in the moment after and self-soothe and get soothing from other people. Amazing. Yeah, I'm just thinking through my own experiences and adaptability, et cetera. So that's really, it's a really good outline of that. Another one that's so big for the work that we do that I think underlies true magnetism in general is self-worth. It's just period. What has to be in play or what would be the foundations to build that in our inner children? You know, one of the key ideas in Good Inside is this idea of family jobs. And I think family jobs is really the thing I come back to when thinking, okay, well, how do I get that secure attachment? Like how does my kid become self-confident? Because when we do our jobs well, most of the time, not all the time, then we really provide a system for our kids to thrive in a million ways. And if you think about the idea of a job, 
it's impossible to do a job well if you don't know what your job is. Nobody would ever want to work at a company where the first day of your job, they're like, just do your job. And if you're like, well, what is my job? If people are like, I don't know, figure it out. You'd be like, well, I can't feel good at a job that's not defined for me. And I also need to know what my job is versus my colleague next to me. So here's what I consider as a parent's job. And I think when we do our jobs well across tricky situations, or, you know, again, some percentage of the time, we we do have kids who have that secure attachment and confidence and self-worth. So I think our job is boundaries, validation, and empathy. Boundaries keep our kids safe emotionally and physically. And validation and empathy show our kids that they're real, that they're real. I think those are the two questions kids are always asking, like, am I safe and am I real? And then I think it's really important to know what a kid's job is. Because I think where we get into trouble as parents is where we kind of take on our kid's job or our kid takes on our job, or we think when we do our job well, that should dictate what happens to their kid or vice versa. So our kid's job in life, or our kid's job in childhood especially, is to feel and experience the full range of their feelings. That's actually their job. Because again, going back to you can't ever learn to manage feelings you don't allow yourself to have. If we think about what we want in the long run, and this is what I think is so different about good insight, is parenting for the long run. It's also parenting for some short-term wins, of course, but it is for the long run because that's what we really want to do. Then we want our kids to have all the skills they can have by the time they're out of our house to manage tough times, to have self-confidence, to be able to manage anger and tell people what you need instead of turn it into resentment, right? Like that's what we want. And so our kids feeling and expressing their feelings is actually they're doing their jobs well and they're doing their jobs and are doing our jobs actually can interplay. So here's an example. My child is very upset that I am, I don't know, let's say about to go out to run some errands and I just need to run errands without them. I need a little bit of breathing space and I know I'm gonna be back in like 10 minutes. Okay, let's take the situation. So how do I do my job well? And I think, what's my job? What's my job? Boundaries, empathy, validation. Boundaries, empathy, validation. Okay, I know my child's already getting upset. I say this. Hey, mom's gonna go out and do some errands. I'm gonna be back in a super short time. Okay, that's the boundary part. I don't say to my kid, hey, I think it would be good for me to go out alone. Nope, not a boundary. Asking my child for permission. That's very scary for everyone. I'm saying, I'm doing this. And then I probably would also add, Oh, I know. You wish you could come with me. I get that. You really feel upset. You're allowed to feel that way. Some version of that. I've actually done my whole job there. Now, this is probably what my kid's going to do. They're going to start crying. No, don't go, right? And assuming there's someone obviously in the house, you know, I feel like can keep them safe. They're actually doing their job. Now, here's where I'm not doing my job. Hey, I'm going out for 10 minutes. Can you just let me be away for a few minutes? Or, hey, I'm going away for 10 minutes. You're being ridiculous, okay? Going back to the, am I real? Really, am I feelings real? That's invalidation. That's like saying to your kid, you think you know your feelings. I know your feelings better than you do. I'm judging them as ridiculous. And so the thing you feel isn't really real. That's really the opposite of self-worth. I think self-worth is really all about having conviction that what's going on inside of you is real and important. The other way we kind of mess up our jobs is I deliver this message. And I feel like my kid, because I'm doing my job well, should say to me, okay, mom, like you deserve 10 minutes alone. Have fun. See you soon. Or the way we don't do our job well is our kid starts crying. And then we say, fine, come with me. Now, that's not empathy. Now our kid's feelings actually took over our decision-making. Like we're not changing our mind because we want to change our mind, which you could. You're changing your mind because your kid's feeling that overwhelmed them 
just overwhelmed you, right? I, I always picture it's like a, being on a plane with turbulence. And if I was on a plane with turbulence and everyone was freaking out, and then the pilot was like, okay, if you think you can do this better than me, come into the cockpit, I'd be like, whoa. And now I'm really scared because there's no leader here. So to develop secure attachment and confidence and self-worth, it really comes from this division of labor and understanding how to do your job in the family system. And I think every tricky situation, it's really what we practice over and over and over, a good inside is coming back to family jobs. It's always the right framework to come back to. And when things are murky or when things feel really tricky in your house, you're in a really stuck stage, it's not always the full answer, but I think it's actually the best start. Okay, what's my job? And what's my kid's job? And where are family jobs, where have they come a little murky or where have they overlapped? And how can I get back to my role again? That's so big. Oh my gosh, I find myself doing this. I, you know, I'm really good at validating their emotions. I'm quite good at speaking boundaries, but at some times I do just pick them up and give in to the thing. <laughs> Look, of course you do. And like, we all should feel free to be like, there's some percentage of the time I'm just going to do that. But I actually think when it comes to feelings, what's so interesting is like, we think we're reacting to our kids' feelings. We're not. We're reacting to the own circuits in our own body that get activated around our kids' feelings. So they start crying, maybe that we're leaving, or they start crying because a puzzle is hard. And then we go in and we say, fine, here's how to do the puzzle, put this piece here. We think we're responding to their frustration. We're actually just kind of using them as a pawn in our own game. We just want to make ourselves less frustrated in the moment. And then you kind of pass on this legacy in that case of like not having frustration tolerance. And so if we think about why do we hold a boundary or why do we you know, separate who we are from who our kids are, it's actually so we can have more clarity, which is, okay, my kid's upset that I'm leaving. Okay, maybe I want to change my mind and I might say, you know what, this is actually a time you can come with me. But if I teach my kids that their feelings actually overwhelm me, I, I, you know, I don't know if you ever heard of this phrase. I think it's so powerful for a kid, which is, I am as I am seen. I am as I am seen. Like, where are their mirrors? So if they see us overwhelmed by the things that overwhelm them, that can get us into a cycle of just kind of co-dysregulation. We have to tolerate in our kids the feelings before they can tolerate those feelings in themselves. Like they have to see that hope and ability from us first. Well, that is all very clear. And I love that. Something else that I want to talk about good inside, or I want you to talk about the two things are true. I think it's just a, that principle is really interesting and I think it's helpful for any relationship dynamic. Yes. Two things are true. It's actually one of the, you know, core chapters in my book, right? It's like such a core idea and it's, I always feel like that and family jobs are like the answers to all my questions. Like it's almost like, what's the answer to my question? I'm like, let me just think about it in one of these frameworks. Like I'm probably going to get to something helpful and it relates to family jobs. Let's take that separation moment where I want to go to the store alone and my child wants to go with me. When we're in a one thing is true mentality, things collapse because often what happens is this, either I get mad at my kid, hey, I want to go to the store and what's assumed there is like, and you shouldn't give me a hard time about it. Or I now go to the store, let's say with my daughter because she was so upset. And so in a way it's like, oh, you're wanting to come with me means I can't go by myself or my wanting to go by myself should mean that you don't want to come with me. 
And when we say it like that, it's like, well, that's obviously not true, but we do this all the time. And even the phrase, two things are true, really is so grounding. And then to just name the two things, two things are true. I want to go to the store alone and my child wants to go with me. Like the the way I would finish it after that is like, that's terribly inconvenient. Like that's just unfortunate, you know, like we're going to have some unhappy people at some point, but having those two truths and separating them really enables us to see our decision-making instead of feeling locked into a single outcome, right? Here's another example. I'm saying to my son, I don't know, that his iPad time is over, something like that. And he's really upset. I can say two things are true. I'm in charge of this decision and your iPad time is over and you're in charge always of how you feel. And I get that you're mad at me and find my iPad rules annoying. I don't even have to resolve anything after that because often parents will say to me, okay, well, what's next? Then what? Then what? And I think the then what is actually looking for some one thing is true mentality as if like my child should come after and say sorry to me. Like assuming he didn't hit me or something, like, why does he have to be sorry for how he feels? Or I need to change my rules about iPad time. I might if I think I should do that, maybe. But my child being upset doesn't mean I have to change my rules. Like if I come back to that two things are true, I can really see both things. And then and just sit with that, right? We just sit with multiplicity. We don't resolve it. We sit with it. And, you know, I talk a big game here. Like, this is hard for me too. <laughs> I'm not like Zen, like sitting with multiple truths in my own life. This is hard work. And it is the answer. Like, it always is. And I think we want to teach our kids, yes, I can care about your feelings and not change my decisions. I think that's a really important lesson for them to have in adulthood. Their feelings don't give them a right with certain people. Just because I feel mad at my friend, let's say, for not inviting me, I don't know, to her small birthday dinner. It doesn't mean she has to. Like she can care about me being upset, but that doesn't have to change her decisions. And, you know, I think we want to teach our kids to regulate feelings, not to have entitlement over feelings. And I think that two things are true idea. It, it really helps us have a grounding in that. Yeah. And to me, you know, as a codependent, you know, even just hearing that is really soothing. You know, you don't have to jump to all of these different feelings of what could be going on and shame and what's actually going, et cetera. It's just like this and this, that's it. Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, I've, I've heard from some parents, you know, they're just say, well, if you really cared, you would let me go to that slumber party. And when I hear that, I think, oh, this is like a powerful moment as a parent. And I would practice this line in front of a mirror. Oh, sweetie, wow, 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 wow. That lets me know something really important that we're confusing two things. Caring about your feelings is not the same as changing my decision because of your feelings. And you're letting me know we really have to practice this over and over. I care that you are upset about not going to the slumber party. I actually truly care about that. And I can talk to you about that. And we can figure out other things to do because you feel left out. And I'm totally sticking to my decision about that. Caring about your feelings doesn't mean people change their decisions. It means they care about your feelings. And I know we're going to get through this. Like coming at that and really naming that so important. What is that rooted in? Where did you learn that? That's so, so powerful. Well, you know what I think is another two things being true that really like underlies the, the good inside, uh, really like philosophy and definitely my book and everything and like our membership. It's like, I really don't like when people, I don't know, they're like, is good inside like gentle parenting? And it's all about a kid's feelings. And I think you've, you've heard enough from me. Like kids' feelings are real and important. They need to be seen and they matter. And no type of child development kind of approach would be good for a child that takes their feelings as all powerful and as dictating decisions. 
I think the good inside approach, which it really does as the two things are true, is it respects a child and adult at the same time. It really respects empathy and validation and firm boundaries, firm boundaries. We've gotten all wrong. It doesn't mean mean. Firm boundaries aren't mean. It means firm. It means, yes, like I am able to embody myself as a parent and care about you. There's actually a lot of separation in our model. I empathize with you because I actually do see you as a separate person. I'm not merging into you. And so I don't think there's actually anything, I mean, there's a part, of course, of the good inside approach that's gentle or soft. It's not like I'd say it's the opposite, but I think the ultimate two things are true. And the part around parenting that I felt really frustrated with as a professional with all the models we've been given, either we care about our kids' feelings and we run ourselves into the ground, <laughs> right? or right, right. we are authoritarian and shaping their behavior. I'm always like, that just can't be my options. Like I can't, that can't be everyone's options. And there has to be a way to work on my boundaries and self-worth as a parent and embody my healthy authority while being connected to my child who I love and respect. And I think there, I really mean, I think there's just like a gap in the parenting market. Like no one really spelled out how to do that. And I think we're really doing that. I think it's why it's really like sparked such a fire because people are like, wow, I really feel seen. And I feel like I see my kids. And someone said to me the other day, they're like, I don't even think you care about kids. Like you get our attention through all these strategies about kids, but you really help parents and mostly women feel more secure and confident and and have their boundaries and feel more assertive and feel entitled to get the things they deserve. And then after that, they are able to become the parent they want to be. And I was like, well, again, can't two things be true? Can I care about kids? You know, we're just right. Like, can I also, I really do care about kids, but I also really care about a parent. And this bullshit narrative of selflessness and pouring yourself out all the time, it's actually not even good for a child. Like nobody wins. You know who wins? Like the patriarchy. Okay. Well, like we don't need to support the patriarchy. So let's do this differently. Amazing. Well done. Well done for filling the gap. That's phenomenal. Because yeah, I hadn't heard that one before. And I'm like, wow, that's really, it's really strong. And also it doesn't set a child up or our inner children, you know, like from when we were young, it doesn't set us up for a lot of failure. It's like, okay, we're going to hear no in life and we can feel that and then move on. Period. Very healthy. Yes, exactly. And then when you hear no, yeah, you want someone to be like, yeah, I get you're upset or like you're some version of like, you're allowed to be mad at me. We are allowed to be mad at the people we love, you know? And I I, I have to get this quote right because I think about it and almost quote it too many times to still not have it right. Okay, so bear with me. But, you know, it is, it's of course, always Glennon Doyle who essentially says, and she's talking about her daughters, our daughters will understand what motherhood is by like the way we mother. They will be as capable of also like taking care of themselves as we are in our own motherhood of taking care of ourselves. I not only want to show my kids, but like, I feel like there's now so many adults who want to show the world there's a different way to do this. Like I, I I can be present and confident and capable and I can have boundaries and my whole family system wins. Yes. Amen. Done. (laughs) I love that. Well, this we kind of covered a little bit, but I just want to hammer this home as the last question before we get a little bit more into the book, et cetera. Our internal critical and self-talk, you know, how is it formed and why is it important to be mindful of this to help build our children's sense of self-worth and confidence, which we touched on. But I think this is a big one because as adults, we all have this, right? It's back to triggers. It's back to recircuiting and rewiring. Let's just talk about that, that critical self-talk and what to do with it. 
Yeah, well, I think it goes back to the importance of repair, right? I think I ask a lot of adults in our community, like how many of you had parents who came to your room after a hard moment and said some version of, I'm sorry, or here's what was really going on. And I mean, the percentage is like so low. I feel like I see like one hand and there's like thousands of people. And I think we're more aware now of the need to do things like that. It's not only like a feel-good moment, it's actually just critical for avoiding the wiring of self-blame all the time. Because when a kid is alone in their room, feeling scared, feeling threatened, feeling alone, what do they do? Well, the only coping mechanisms they really have when they're alone after a moment of distress with their caregivers or a moment that didn't feel good is self-blame or self-doubt or some combination of the two. Self-doubt is, wait, that couldn't have happened. I don't think I felt that right. I'm probably overreacting because if that really happened, like, I don't know, someone would talk to me about it, right? No, I'm a bad feeler of my feelings, which is such a core experience of so many adults. It's why so many adults, oh, what do you think? What would you do if you're in my position? Or let me ask my friend this, or, hey, do you think I'm overreacting? It comes from that core experience of self-doubt or you have self-blame. A kid says, it's my fault. I'm a bad kid. If I only did X, Y, or Z, that yelling would never have happened. And, you know, a kid has to do that because when things are left unexplained, they would rather preserve their parents' goodness as the leaders of their world than risk seeing their parents as bad, right? I think as Fairburn, psychoanalyst from, you know, many, many decades ago said, it, you know, essentially it's better to be a sinner in a world ruled by God than an angel in a world ruled by the devil. And if you think about that, that's the chills. Like I think that's the most powerful idea in human development ever. And when you think about kids, so self-blame for kids is adaptive to feel in control and to feel safe. But again, fast forward 30 years, no longer adaptive. We don't have to do that anymore, but it wired early. And I think for everyone here thinking about this, even if you don't have kids, just start to have a little playful relationship with your self-criticism. Oh, it's all my fault. Hey, hey, you know, you know what I know for every single person listening? You did not come out of the womb saying to yourself, oh, it's my fault that I'm crying and I'm hungry. Or, oh, is this too much? Do you think another baby would be crying right now? Like, I wonder if that baby would be crying. Do you think I should just wait? Like, that definitely didn't happen. You felt very comfortable owning and expressing your wants and needs and distress. And we got from that point to the point so many of us are at today from, again, a place that used to be adaptive and no longer is. That's just so big and so important. And I love the way that you painted that picture because it's absolutely true. It's huge. Step one of rewiring ourselves of where we are now is just understanding that and knowing that. That's amazing. Tell us more about Good Inside. Tell us about the membership. Where can we find you? Give us all the goods. So if you go to goodinside.com, that's the home for everything. But the first thing I would do, honestly, is just sign up for my Thursday email. As you can hear from me, like I have a lot of thoughts and I love to get them out and like Instagram and Twitter and TikTok. I'm at all of those, but it doesn't allow me to like coalesce more of my thoughts. So my Thursday email is honestly just something I sit down and like write in an organized way. And there's always a section, put this into action today. And it's just so simple. And I, I love writing it. And I love hearing from people who get that. So definitely sign up for that. And then if you're someone who's looking to take that next step, there's two main ways, or I love when people do all of it. So my book is called Good Inside, A Guide to Becoming the Parent You Want to Be. It really goes over the whole arc of my approach and then breaks down like 20 really common struggles in parenthood tantrums, hitting, sibling rivalry, having a kid who's shy. And then it breaks it down by looking at how to apply principles in like the very concrete, practical way. So it's both 
an approach for a whole framework. And it's something you can just flip to a chapter and open the chapter you need. And then the membership really was born out of everything I've heard from parents for the last two years. They just keep saying the same things. I want to stop Googling my questions. I want a trusted digital library with answers to my common parenting questions. I want a community of other parents who share my general parenting values. They might not think the exact same way, but we're driven by the same values. And I want access, Dr. Becky, to you and other people who think like you. So in membership, we built a digital library. It's the first of its kind, kind of think Netflix for parenting. We have this amazing community platform where you can talk to parents around the globe. We are in over 30 countries. It means there's always someone up when it's 2 a.m. your time. And then we've trained Good Inside coaches and they live in the community. That's where I answer questions. And we are there both doing multiple live events a month, small groups, big groups. And we just answer the questions that come up on the message boards. All of the workshops are also there too. A lot of people love our workshops, both nothing to do with parenting, just building coping skills, everything to do with parenting, and the entire workshop collection is included. And I just couldn't be more excited. It's the thing I'm most proud of, that membership platform, and it's still the first inning. So, so many amazing things are going to be coming there and want you all there right from the start. Congratulations. It's amazing. It sounds a lot like our model. And I know it's very, very helpful for people. So bravo, bringing that to the parent space. It's incredible. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Becky. Congratulations on this book launch. I'm so excited for you. And I can't wait to um, dive into the membership myself. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Can't wait to see you there. Anyone listening who joins, I always love to know where people come from. So truly on that platform, not Instagram, send me a DM if you're like, hey, I came from Expanded. And I'll be like, oh, let me walk you through the next step. I, I love I love to know. So um, hope to see a lot of you soon. And if not, thank you for listening. You're obviously a person who such a deep thinker and like really invests in yourself. And I just feel like that says so much about someone. Agreed, agreed. Thank you so much for tuning into the episode, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, we did. And in case you're not totally ready to join the pathway yet, I wanted to share a few of our free offerings that I'll often suggest to people as a little bit of a blueprint to get them started on their manifestation journey. The first place I like to direct people completely for free is the motivation. You can see it linked below or on our homepage as our testimony library. And it's categorized by different subjects, whether you're calling in career, money, love, wellness, and much more. When you're reading about a member's experience of what they manifested, you're actually seeing to believe and showing your subconscious that that very thing is possible for you. The second place I like to direct people is to the free clarity exercise, which is also linked below. In it, you get to try our own unique hypnosis process, learn about the science and some journaling prompts. And the best part about this, you'll get a tiny taste of what it's like to go into your hypnotic state, bring your subconscious forward and create new neural pathways while receiving clarity. And the third thing, if you haven't listened to it on this podcast yet, please go back to the episode titled Manifestation 101, where you'll learn the basics of neural manifestation to truly understand this process. So go ahead and check out those free resources, the motivation, the free clarity exercise, and the episode Manifestation 101, all linked below. And in an effort to make sure to have representation in this process series, go ahead and submit any process testimonials you have 
especially to our LGBTQ plus community, our BIPOC, as well as the Ys, which is anyone in the community who is 45 and over. All right, we'll be back next week. <laughs>